So today we're going to be in Luke 22 again. We're going to be going through verses 54 through 71, and this is called the wrong campfire. So have you ever found yourself completely in the wrong place? Maybe you took a wrong turn, or maybe even you were knowingly hanging out with people that you shouldn't. That can also be the wrong place. Uh, and it can mess you up in a lot more ways than one. I remember many years ago when Kathy and I were, were just young things in, in the pre-children era, um, she had gone with me up to Gen Con. And for those of you who don't know, Gen Con is a big convention that I have to go to every year with my work. It at the time was the biggest gaming convention in North America for board games and things like that. And uh, I had to go there and she came with me uh, early in our marriage. And on this particular trip, um, I was actually there as a fan. It was before I was working there. And it was at a time when I brought my resume with me and it led me to my current career. But after the convention, we hopped in our car and we drove out of Indianapolis, where it was held, uh, to head back south. Uh, or so we thought, anyway. Um, you have to remember, this was a time before GPS was really easily available. You could have a TomTom or a Garvin device on your dinosaur in those days. But you still had to have some cash for those services. They were not cheap. And it wasn't a free app on your phone. Most of us were still using a good old-fashioned map. Though Kathy and I were a bit upmarket, so we had a spiral one, you know. But as you can imagine from where I'm going, we did not end up going south. We somehow ended up going north. <laughs> and it was, at, it was late at night when we left the convention, y'all. Cut me some slack. But at about two hours later, we were really confused when we saw signs for Chicago. <laughs> and that the mileage to Chicago was getting lower instead of uh, higher. Uh, I don't really recall how tense the ride together was after that at this point, but I do know that we did make it home, albeit a slightly longer trip than expected. Going the wrong way put us in a problem. And we're going to see today how being in the wrong place or with the wrong people can have a huge, huge impact on us. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you today for your word, Lord. We want to thank you for the examples that you give us in your word, that um, even your disciples fail, yet you're always there for them, Lord, just like you're always there for us, Lord, and that uh, you seek to redeem, you seek to restore, and that you just want to draw us closer to you. Lord, I pray these words uh, would come from you today, and that they, you would just uh, speak them out to the people here, um, that they would hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're picking up in Luke 22, right after Jesus had been taken in the night by the Jewish leadership, and we pick up right after this in verse 54. Verse 54 and 55 say, Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. So at this point, Peter and Jesus have made their way to the house of the high priest Caiaphas. They weren't in jail or a prison, but they were in the home of the high priest, and Jesus was taken inside while Peter stayed slightly away. Now, the arrest of Jesus, though done in the night, did get a lot of attention, likely uh, more than the officials had hoped when they took him. The courtyard of the house had enough people in it that they built campfire. And then who came to sit at that campfire with them? It was Peter. But think about this. Who would have been the other people around that campfire or campfires out in the courtyard? They certainly weren't the other apostles. 
It was a mix of the lower priests, temple guards, and looky-loos who were moving ahead with Jesus' arrest. And Peter sat right by the fire with all those enemies. It's like going into a bar with a bunch of surly bikers and expecting there to not be any trouble. He was surrounding himself with the very people who were against him. Now, of course, we're called to reach out to the unsaved, but this wasn't what was happening. This was just impulsive Peter doing Peter things. And sure enough, it doesn't work out the way he thought, if he had thought about it at all. Let's go on to Luke 22, 56 through 57. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, this man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, woman, I do not know him. Here Peter is, surrounded by the, the enemy. And when the servant girl approached him and accused him of being with Jesus, he immediately denied him. Now, this was a failing, a big failing for someone who had been so bold about his commitment just a few chapters and verses back. In Luke twenty two thirty three, we can see where Peter had boldly said, but he, Peter, said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. But things were topsy-turvy right now. Jesus had been arrested, and we've all been in a situation where we felt intimidated to share our faith, haven't we? I know I have. I've had times where there were people who I knew needed to hear a message, but in, to my own shame, I just didn't want to put my neck out, and I regret those times. So we can probably find a little bit of grace for Peter here. Let's go on to Luke twenty-two fifty-eight. It says, And after a little while... Another saw him and said, you are also of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. Well, here was his second chance. He had a chance to make things right, to repent for his failing of earlier. It wasn't like he was being berated by the people either. He was just being questioned. The word says it had been a little while since the first girl had asked him, so they weren't just constantly picking at him. Peter would have had ample time to go to the Lord in prayer and to recenter himself and to be ready for the next accusation. But that's not what appeared to happen. He doubled down on not knowing Christ. So how many times do we double down in our own thoughts and our worries and stew on them? I do it. I do it a lot. Kathy can tell you. It feels like sometimes the phrase I hear the most is, you need to take that to Jesus because I don't always. I'll wrestle with my own decisions, my own 200 variations of how an event can go wrong instead of, and just in my own incredible display of power that I have that I'll solve it, you know? But no, I, I don't have the power. I can't do it on my own. I need to take it to Jesus right away, and that's why that advice is so good. Take it to Jesus. But how much harder would that be when you've put yourself in a place where you're surrounded by people who don't love you and don't care about you and won't point you to Jesus. Peter's sitting in a group full of people who are out for blood, not healing, and he had no one to remind him where the real power was. But our Lord is infinitely patient, and he gave Peter one more chance. See, that's the thing. I think sometimes people forget that he was questioned three times, and oftentimes we look at this as a big failing that he failed three times, but another perspective is God gave him three chances to pull himself back. God was being so patient with Peter even as the time was passing. So let's go on to Luke twenty-two fifty-nine 59 through 60. 
Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow who was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. So now we've had an hour. You can get a lot done in an hour. Okay? Peter is still hanging out with these people, and he's still denying Christ. Now, we know why he's, he, why he's there. He's trying to stay loyal, but he still hasn't gotten it out of his own head. He's still confused. He's still scared, thinking that the entire ministry had fallen apart. There's even the possibility that he was beginning to doubt, have that little small doubt start to creep in. Is Jesus really who he said he was? How could he be taken by these people? And for the third time, he denies him. Let's go on to Luke twenty-two sixty-one through 62. It says, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord and how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. So we know that Peter was outside in the courtyard. So the assumption is that either Jesus was just now being led out of the house or that he was looking through a window and made eye contact with Peter. But whatever was going on in there with him, whatever accusations he was facing or grilling he was facing, he made the time to make that eye contact with Peter just to be the reminder, I I told you, I told you. Just like the night when they were in the garden, he had told him multiple times, stay awake and pray. Stay awake and pray. As I mentioned last week, I believe this was what he was reminding him to pray about, was that this was coming. And Peter didn't have to fail here. He could have been leaning on the Lord. He could have been in prayer and had the strength to say and stand by his convictions that he would face even jail or death with Christ no matter what. But he wasn't staying in prayer. He was was surrounded by the wrong voices, and he was scared. If we look at Luke twenty-two thirty-four, it says, Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. He knew it was coming, and Peter just couldn't refocus, and it did come to pass. God had shown incredible patience for Peter, giving him three chances to stand by Jesus, even in his trials. Peter was stewing on his thoughts in the midst of those against Jesus, and he should have removed himself to a place to pray, to hear the word of the Lord. The peace was being offered to him, even in this situation. But at the end, he did end up retreating. And here's a fun fact, something I found while I was researching on this. In the time since then, the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, has been discovered and excavated, and a church was built on top of it. It was a church to St. Peter. And the church was dedicated to him, and they put a cross on it with a rooster on top. There's a permanent rooster there. Because, well, let's never let him live it down, right? (laughs) Wouldn't that be the thing, right? Imagine if people remembered a time that Jesus had called you out and then built a monument to that so that everyone would always remember where you failed. It sounds pretty bad, right? But we know the future of Peter. And I I believe that Peter would want everyone to know this story. He would probably be the first one telling it. Because even though this was a very painful part of his life, like it said, this grown man ran out weeping, realizing what he had done. 
three times denying him, but Jesus was always there to reconcile with him. He still wanted Peter. And he's ready for us as many times as it takes. And so I think that Peter probably smiles and laughs hearing that story now, knowing that we get to learn that lesson from him. Another thing that should be noted about this is that the questioning in the house from the high priest and the others took place overnight. Now, the interesting thing is this was in direct violation of the Sanhedrin's own law. No one was to be questioned at night, but here they were doing it, trying to keep it all secret. You know, as the Bible says, the things you do in the dark will be revealed in the light, and it would be revealed eventually, but they thought they could get away with it. But it gets even worse as the story changes and Jesus gets left with the guards, which we'll read about here in Luke 22, 63 through 65. It says, Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him, and having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. So this is pretty brutal. Not only are they making fun of him, saying, telling him to prophesy, but they were just punching him square in the face, hitting him with things. And it's one thing to be in a fight with somebody and to take a hit, but to be blindfolded, you don't even know where the next hit's coming from. Your body will naturally, instinctively change its weight and take positions when it knows a hit's coming. Christ had no ability to do that because he couldn't see. He was taking the full force of every hit coming from any direction. And the mocking continued throughout the whole thing. But remember where they were still. They were still in the chief priest's house. The man who's supposed to be the head of the church in Hebrew times was allowing all this. It's not like this could have been happening and them not be aware. Even, a, even the house of a high priest or a wealthy person would have been large by their standards, but not necessarily by ours. I mean, a huge home back then would have been an average well-to-do house here. If someone was beating someone and mocking them, you'd probably hear it a few rooms away. They did nothing. They were fine with it. They turned a blind eye to it. So in Isaiah 53.3, Isaiah described what was going to happen. He said, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. So the interesting thing here is how he says, we hid our faces from him. But the guards brought that to fruition by blindfolding him. That kept their faces from him. But it showed how much they despised him. He received the same treatment as a future false messiah, Bar Kokhba, would. He was mentioned in the Talmud. He uh, tried to be the traditional messiah they were expecting, where he rose up an army to attack the Romans and try to fight them off. Eventually, he was revealed to be false as well, and exactly the same treatment happened to him. He was taken in in the night, beaten, and then put on trial. So it was pretty brutal, but it seemed to be their, their par for the course. One thing to note here as well, while a lot of illustrations that you'll see in Bible story books or things like that show Roman-style guards here beating on him with their, their tough helmets and their, uh, you know, the, the armor that they wear, Nowhere in the text does it actually say these are Roman guards. It simply says guards. Most likely, these are the Hebrew temple guards, the bodyguards of the high priests. And at this point, Rome hasn't even gotten involved yet. Rome, he's just a, as far as Rome knows, it's just a little troublemaker Hebrew that they're going to take care of. 
So these are his own people. These are the chosen people who are doing this to him. Now we can read Luke 22, 66 through 67. It says, As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both the chief priests and scribes, came together and led him to, into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. So now, after all this has gone on in the night, supposedly hidden, they finally take him to the actual trial with the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin were a council of influential and wealthy Hebrew men who served as judges and arbiters over both religious and secular things. So whenever there was something going on, it would be brought to them, whether it was a land dispute or a crime or something, and they got to decide. But notice, they were unusually wealthy landowners in almost all cases. So who do you think they were beholden to right now in Hebrew history? Rome. Rome ruled everything, and if they ruffled the Romans' feathers too much, it might get difficult for them. They might get taxed a little more. They might lose a little bit of their wealth. So they definitely want to keep things quiet and keep Rome happy. So much that they were completely, they were so caught up in maintaining the little bit of earthly wealth that they had, they didn't see the infinite wealth that was standing right in front of them when it was brought into trial. Clearly, they didn't believe Jesus. And I mean, think about it. They walked a man in who was bloodied, likely had two black eyes, a broken nose at this point, blood pouring down his face. That's certainly not the Messiah that the Hebrews were expecting, was it? They were expecting a guy on a horse with a big sword who was going to drive out Rome, and this guy... He's clearly not going to be it. What leader could crush the Romans and drive out his armies in this state? But as always, Christ knows their heart, and he knows their answers before they can speak them. As he said in uh, continuing from verse uh, 67, he had said, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit upon the right hand of the power of God. So have you ever been in one of those discussions where almost from the beginning of the discussion, the person you're talking to has no interest in what you're saying? It's even more frustrating when the conversation began with them asking you a question. They ask you a question and they do not care what you're going to say. They're already tuned out and you can tell. All they're doing is either getting ready for what they want to say, and the question was just an excuse to get the conversation started, or they just don't care at all. It doesn't matter. They've already made their decision. Jesus knows this because, of, of course, he knows how it's going to end. He already knew that they were going to accuse him, and it didn't matter what he said to them. So almost in a way to save time in this, and to, but also to call them out on record for the sham that this whole trial was, he gets right to the point. You won't believe me no matter what I say or do. Then, of course, almost with complete ignorance, or possibly they were so intent on their end goal that they didn't even listen to what he said because they immediately followed with what we see in Luke 70 through 71. He says, Then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? And he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. And there it was. He told them, you rightly say that I am. It's an interesting response because surely none of these Sanhedrin would have said Jesus was a son of God. That was directly opposed 
to what they were accusing him of, of being a blasphemer. But through their actions, they would see the prophecy of the Son of God fulfilled. And in that way, in truth, they did say that he was playing the part that was foretold in the prophecies of the Old Testament. And to them, it was an open and shut case because that's all they ever wanted it to be. The sentence for a false messiah was death. But the Sanhedrin, they didn't have the legal ability anymore to execute that since the Romans had taken over. So they would have to create some charges and trump up some claims that would convince the Roman authorities to carry out the sentence. Something along the lines of spreading treason against Rome. But we'll see more of that next week when we get to where Jesus is brought before Pilate. So as we look into our week ahead and our time to come, remember where Peter was in this. He was in a place he shouldn't have been, around people he shouldn't have been. There's a very clear difference when God is calling you to reach out to the unsaved and people like that. And there's a very clear difference when you're just flirting with it because it's fun or it's a neat place to be. So make sure that you keep yourself clear, that you keep yourself in prayer so that when that time comes, you won't be intimidated. You won't be brought down and heaven forbid you don't deny the Lord. (laughs) But even in that, remember that God restores. He can always lift us up. And for that, we are eternally blessed.